Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 8th, 2018. Now, this will be the last episode of this week, and I will be taking a couple of days off next week just to kind of recoup. Yeah, PCR conference coming up on Friday. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, <gasps> prophetesses, and self-appointed apostles and apostolettes. Those are the only kind there are nowadays, the self-appointed kind. And those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the evangelical world is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, like not even close anymore. All right, so today will be the last day of our broadcast week, uh, and you know, with everything going on in preparation for the Pirate Christian Radio Conference, which is this Friday, there's just no way that we're going to get anything else done. So uh, today I'm going to again pull on Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now some of you may be wondering, well, why haven't you finished up Pastor Charmley's sermons? Because we're waiting for the next installment. We kind of caught up to him. We're hoping that there's more in the series. So if uh, Pastor Charmley preaches some more of those sermons on uh, the book of Jude, we will be including those uh, you know, in a future installment of Fighting for the Faith. So once again, I'm going to pull on Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, because he's well in his grave and isn't being impacted by today's wackerdoodle heretics. And uh, and so the name of the message we'll be listening to, without interruption, by the way, uh, is titled Redemption, the Eternal Plan of God. Redemption, the Eternal Plan of God. And we'll pay attention to his use of law and gospel and and, and how he doesn't pull any punches regarding sin and its effects and and what it is that Christ is saving us from. You know, just you know, that's kind of the important stuff that's like missing from so many of today's sermons. Now, a little bit of a note, I will be taking a couple of days off next week, probably Monday and Tuesday, uh, just for sanity and recovery. 
uh, from all the things going on regarding the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Conference. So uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you know that uh, the next installment of Fighting for the Faith will be next Wednesday, the 15th of August, I think. And uh, and so just to let you know that. But without any further ado, here is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Without any commercial interruption, uh, Redemption, the Eternal Plan of God. Here we go. As we resume this uh, consideration of biblical doctrines, it would be well perhaps that we should remind one another of the exact point at which we have uh, already arrived in our consideration. We started, as it were, with uh, this general proposition that we find ourselves in this world and find it difficult to understand both the world and ourselves. We have within us a sense of God, and yet uh, that is not enough in and of itself to bring us to a knowledge of God. And we came to the conclusion that if we really are to know anything truly about God or ourselves or our world, we must of necessity come to this book which we say is the word of God, inspired of God and by God, and which is the infallible word of God. And therefore we come and submit ourselves to this, realizing that there will be many things that we cannot understand, but that we are to come with minds made receptive by the operation of the Holy Spirit upon us. And the first thing we find as we do that is, that God has been graciously pleased to reveal himself to us. And we've considered that revelation. And then we came on and considered what God has done. The creation, heavens and of earth. And the various beings and orders of beings that God has brought into existence. But we've concentrated especially upon man. And we saw that God created men perfect made him in his own image. We try to consider what the Bible tells us as to the meaning of men being created in the image and the likeness of God. And there we saw him in a place called paradise, without sin, perfect and enjoying a life of communion and of fellowship with God. But from that we looked at men as he is today. We looked at ourselves and as we know ourselves to be. And the great question that arises is, why is man as he is now if he was once like that? And that led us to a consideration of the doctrine of the fall. And we really ended with a consideration of that. We saw that man is and every individual is as he is because of the fall of Adam. The first men disobeyed God and transgressed, and that led to his fall. And in working out the doctrine of original sin, as it's called, we saw that man, as the result of this, is in a fallen condition. He is guilty before God. His very nature is polluted and perverted. And he is quite helpless. Helpless especially in the matter of returning to God and of arriving at a, at a knowledge of God. You remember we summed it up by putting it like this. That you look at men today and you say with that Puritan John Howe, God once dwelt here. 
Man is a ruin, a ruin of his former self. And there we looked at him, driven out of the paradise, out of the garden of God, and earning his bread by the, and eating his bread by the sweat of his brow, with all that is so true of him and his nature as the result of sin. But we were glad to end on a note of hope. We found that in the third chapter of Genesis, in which we are given that account of the fall of men and the immediate consequences of the fall and some of the remote consequences, we saw that after all there was a hope. Before God thrust men out of the garden, he gave him a promise. It looked at the moment as if everything was irretrievably lost. Man, having listened to the devil in the form of the serpent, had made himself the slave of the devil, under the power of the devil, and unable to resist him, helpless in his hands. And it looked as if man's future and his destiny were altogether lost and hopeless. But even there, I say, God flashed into the gloom and into the darkness a ray of light. He addressed the serpent first of all and pronounced a curse upon him and told him that there should be warfare between him and the seed of the woman, that uh, he should pierce, as it were, the heel of the seed of the woman, but that he likewise should be crushed, that his head would be crushed. And there, I say, was the one gleam of hope. Now we proceed to consider what exactly is meant by that hope. Having traced man's history from his original perfection to his degradation and his pollution in a state of sin and in a state of guilt, we ask, is there no hope for him? And the answer is yes. In other words, we are beginning to consider the biblical doctrine of redemption or if you prefer it, the biblical doctrine of salvation. Now, we are going to consider together what this means. In many ways, it can be said, of course, that this is the big theme and the central theme of the whole of the Bible. Most of the Bible is given to an account of this particular theme. And yet, all that we've considered hitherto has been absolutely essential. And it is because so many so frequently fail to consider that mighty background that we've considered together in 19 lectures, that their conception of the doctrine of salvation is often an uh, incomplete one and is often even fallacious at certain points. It is only as we truly understand something of the nature and the character of God that we can understand this grand redemption. And certainly it is only as we see the need of men and the condition of men in sin that we can truly grasp this great doctrine of redemption. Therefore, it is but right that we should have spent all that time in considering these great doctrines that lead on to the doctrine of redemption. However, I say here we are now face to face with this great central doctrine. And obviously it's a very large doctrine and a very comprehensive doctrine which we will have to divide up under various headings and sections. I'm not going to do that tonight. 
I'm rather anxious this evening that we should take a general look at the biblical doctrine of redemption. Here again is something which I advocate to you uh, very strongly. It is a very wise thing, it's a very biblical thing, to take a general view of the biblical doctrine of redemption before we come to its particular aspects. And as we do so, we shall find that certain things stand out very prominently. They stand out very gloriously. And we must grasp them and take a firm hold of them. Let me try and put them for you in the form of a number of headings. Here's the first. Redemption is entirely of God. That's the first statement. And uh, what we have in the Bible is the record, the account, of God's activity in the redemption of men. Now that, of course, is something that you find at once way back there in the third chapter of Genesis. The moment man had fallen and found himself in this pitiable condition, and when he seemed to be absolutely without hope, the hope was given by something that God did. It was God that spoke. It was God that said something. And it was God that gave an outline as to what he was proposing to do. Now, this can never be emphasized too strongly. That the Bible, after all, is an account of what God has done about the redemption of men. It is not an account of men seeking for God. That's been perhaps the greatest heresy of all that has characterized so much of the church and her teaching during the past hundred years. The so-called higher critics were never tired of telling us, influenced as they were by the doctrine of evolution which they applied to the scriptures, that the Old Testament was nothing but a record of men searching for God. It's the exact opposite. It's the record of God's activity, what he has done, and what he is going to do. Now, we can put that very clearly perhaps in this form. You remember that we saw that when God had made men in his own image and likeness and had placed him in the garden, he made a covenant with men which is generally being called, very rightly, the covenant of works. What God said to Adam, you remember, can be put in this form. He turned to the men and he said, well now, if you keep my commandments, if you do what I tell you and if you refrain from eating of that particular tree, if you refrain from doing what I have prohibited to you, you will go on growing and increasing in your perfection. And he made certain promises to men. Man's future was then contingent upon man's own action, upon man's behavior. It was a covenant of works. But you remember that man failed to keep it. He broke it. He went astray. He rebelled against God. And the result of that was that he has landed himself in that condition which we described as one of total inability. So clearly God could no longer make a covenant of works with men. Man, when he was perfect, had failed to keep the covenant of works. So God obviously doesn't make another covenant of works. It is already impossible in the light of what we have already seen. But I say we should thank God that that is not the position. And uh, the biblical doctrine of redemption is an account of what God 
has done about men. Or let me put it in this form. It is not a question of what men can do to placate God. The Bible doesn't tell us that. There are some people who seem to think that the business of the Bible, that the message of the Bible is a message which tells us what we've got to do in order to please and to placate this God whom we have offended. That again is quite wrong. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible tells us of what God has done in order to reconcile us to himself. I want to put that very strongly. God is not only not unwilling to receive us. It is he who goes out of his way to seek us. So if we want to grasp the biblical doctrine of redemption, we must once and forever get rid of that notion which has been instilled into the human mind and heart by the devil who is God's adversary and our adversary that God is someone who is against us. The Bible represents God as being entirely different. Its message is this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we must never think of God as someone whom we somehow or another have to placate. Indeed, I want to go even further and put it in this extreme form. The Bible does not even tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ needs to do that for us or has done that for us. We often find people who hold that view. They say that there is God in his justice and in his absolute righteousness and they depict the Lord Jesus Christ as pleading with God on our behalf and beseeching God to forgive us. You'll find it in certain hymns and choruses. But it's utterly unbiblical. It's quite false to the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching can be summed up in what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. The biblical case is not that Christ, as it were, has to appeal to God to change his mind. It was God who sent Christ. It is God himself who takes the action. So that we can never emphasize too frequently or too strongly this first proposition which is that redemption and salvation are entirely of God and that the Bible is nothing but a record of what God has done and is doing and will do about us men and our salvation. The second principle is this, that it is all of grace. It was all done in spite of men's rebellion, in spite of men's arrogance, in spite of men's folly in spite of men's sin. You go back to that account in the third of Genesis and that is what you'll find. Man foolishly disobeyed and rebelled. And there he is, frightened and alarmed when he hears the voice of God. And he goes to hide himself. His instinct now is to get away from God. And it's God who calls after him. Calls him to come back. Now that's the whole case of the Bible. This gracious action on the part of God who doesn't turn his back upon men and upon the world because of sin and disobedience and the fall. 
but who, in spite of the fact that we are so undeserving of his love and his mercy and his compassion, looks upon us with a piteous eye and speaks to us in terms of grace and in terms of love. You remember that when we were indeed considering the character of God, we emphasized this aspect of grace. Grace means undeserved favor. And that is the essence of the biblical message. We've been singing it in our hymn. This wonderful God of ours, great God of wonders, all thy ways are godlike, matchless, and divine. But there's nothing comparable to the grace of God. The way in which he looks upon men and the world in spite of what man has done and addresses him and gives him these promises. We have no claim upon the love of God. We forfeited it. And it is in spite of that that God still continues to have any dealings with us. It is all of grace. You noticed it in that first chapter of Ephesians. You'll find the same note everywhere running throughout the Bible. The next point that is made very clear about uh, this doctrine of redemption in the Bible is that it was all planned before the foundation of the world. Now this is most important. Again, I would refer you to that section which we read together in the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Redemption is not an afterthought. It wasn't something that God thought of after men fell and because men fell. To say that again is to contradict the, the scripture. The scripture all along keeps on referring to this as something that was conceived before the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever made, before man was ever created. This, this plan of redemption was clearly in the mind of God. Now here again we are confronted by one of those great mysteries. There's a sense in which it's impossible for us to grasp that. We are so bound by time, we are so accustomed to seeing everything in a kind of time sequence, we think chronologically it's quite inevitable that we should do so. But God is outside time. God sees the end from the beginning. All things are always in the presence of God. It's a staggering thought, and yet here it is, very plainly taught us everywhere in the scriptures. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, the plan, the idea of redemption was already present in the mind of God. Now, you will find that uh, certain people give the impression that uh, God is continually having to modify his plans and his purposes because of things that are done by men. But this, I say, is something you can never substantiate from the scriptures, which will always present us with this great idea that this vast scheme of redemption was in existence before man was even created. The next thing we go on to is something that we should consider with adoration, with praise, and with worship. And it's this. The three persons of the Blessed Trinity take part in this plan, in this purpose, in this great scheme and act of redemption. There can be no question at all from the scriptures 
that a council took place between the three persons of the Blessed Trinity with respect to men, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there in that eternal council they seem very clearly to have divided up the work so that we can describe the Father as the originator. We can describe the Son as the kind of executor and the Holy Spirit as the one who applies. The Father originates, the Son executes, the Holy Spirit applies what the Son has achieved. And I say it is quite clear that thus, before the very foundation of the world, the three persons in the Blessed Trinity evolved this great plan and scheme of redemption, which has come into the world and to men in the way that we are going to consider but it is very clear that in particular an agreement, if you like, even a covenant was made between the Father and the Son. God the Eternal Father made a covenant, made an arrangement with God the Eternal Son. It is quite clear according to the scriptures that the Son has been made the heir of all things. That's a scriptural statement. Which I take it means this that everything in this world was given to him. It was as it were handed to him. He has thus been made the heir of all things, and everything that happens in this world and on this earth belongs therefore to his domain. You remember how our Lord in the high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John reminds his father in that prayer as thou hast given him power over all flesh. That's the same idea. God the Father hands the world as it is to the Son, and he gives him power over it. The eighth Psalm not only refers to men, it refers in a very special way to the Son of God himself. But beyond that, we see very clearly in the Scripture that for this purpose of redemption, God the Father has made the Son the head and the representative of a new humanity. Take, for instance, what you are told in the fifth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. You remember the contrast? As in Adam, so in Christ. That's the contrast that the Apostle works out there. And he, his teaching is this, that Adam, as we have seen, was the head and the representative of mankind. But now, for the purposes of redemption, God has appointed a new head and a new representative, and that is his own son. He could not appoint a man, obviously, because all men had fallen in Adam. And God cannot appoint as a representative fallen men if men in a state of perfection had failed. How much more so must men in a state of imperfection fail? So now you see, we begin to see why the incarnation was an absolute necessity. There was no one on earth with whom God could make his covenant. There was no one whom he could pick out and make a head and a representative. So he takes his own son whom he's going to send into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he appoints him as the head and the representative of this new humanity. 
You get that, I say, in the fifth of Romans. You get it equally definitely in the first epistle to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The same contrast between Adam and, uh, and, and our Lord. And, of course, you get the same thing in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's it. And the things that follow from that. And then we see that the next step in this compact or in this covenant between the Father and the Son was obviously this. That God the Father gave a people. You read, for instance, the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And you find our Lord constantly refers to that. He says that the Father had given him this people whom he should raise at the last day and that he must not lose anything of what God has given him. It's very clear in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John that high priestly prayer, again, our Lord goes on repeating that he is doing all this for the sake of those whom the Father has given him. Father, the hour is come, he says, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And he goes on repeating that phrase, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. And then he reminds his father, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled, and so on. So that is clearly another part of this great compact. And you have another reference to it in the epistle to the Hebrews, in the second chapter and the thirteenth verse. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. A reference to the Son, speaking of these people whom God has given him. So that clearly there was this arrangement of this people who had been given to him. He is the head of this people, this new humanity, the redeemed. But further, we see that God not only gave him people, but he gave him a certain work to do with respect to this people. Again, I go back to the 17th of John and I read this. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So that the Father in eternity gave the Son a certain work to do with respect to these people. And then having given him the work to do, he sent him to do it. God so loved the world, I say again, that he gave his only begotten Son. God sent forth his woman, sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, and so on. That's the essential teaching that it is the Father who sends forth the Son. And indeed, in a most marvelous way, we are actually told that the Father even prepared a body for him. You remember the reference to that in the 40th Psalm. You'll find it quoted again in the 10th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. A body thou hast prepared. Now, I'm emphasizing all this again to show not only that all this work of redemption is the work of the Blessed Trinity, but that it is in an especial way the work of the Father as originator. 
And he thus makes this compact with the son and sends the son to do this work which he has given him to do. The next, the fifth general heading I would suggest is this one. That this plan and scheme of redemption is a definite plan. It is a perfect plan. And it was all perfect, I say again, before the very foundation of the world itself. There is nothing accidental about this plan. There is nothing at all contingent about it. But as God had worked it out and mapped it out in eternity, so it has been put into operation in this world of time and amongst us men. You can't read the Bible without noticing in a very particular way the time element. Everything that has happened up till this moment has happened according to God's plan and according to God's program. There are some most astonishing instances of this in the scripture. You remember, for instance, that God actually told Abraham of the 430 years which uh, his descendants should spend in the captivity of Egypt down to an hour, to a second. It's a most fascinating and the most elevating thing to do to consider some of these instances and to work them out in detail. The time of the flood was known to God when he first gave his commandment to Noah to start building that ark. And when the world began to scoff and said, where is the promise of this judgment that you're speaking about? God knew, and at the very moment it happened, all these things have happened exactly and precisely at the very time which God had appointed for them. The time when he chooses a man called Abram and founds a nation in him. We'll be considering this again in detail. I take it merely as an example of the various steps which God has taken. And all of them happen at the very point when God had decided and determined that they should happen. And so as you go along with all the history of the judges and the kings and the prophets, it's all according to this perfect plan, and it is all perfectly timed. And this brings us especially, of course, to that great and glorious statement which tells us that when the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. People have often asked, well, if God gave that promise away back there in Eden, why did he wait so long before he sent his son? It's an idle question to ask. But God has his great purpose in it all. It's very easy to suggest many reasons why God did not send his son until the exact moment when he sent him. It seems to me more and more clear that he did this in order that he might show men his utter and complete helplessness first. The law had to be given in order that men might see that he couldn't keep it. An opportunity had to be given to Greek philosophy to do everything that it could do. An opportunity had to be given to Roman law and Roman ideas of justice and of government. Everything that men can think of for redeeming himself and his world had already been tried and had failed before God sent his son. But God knew it from the beginning. If we are told uh, that he that believeth shall not make haste, 
How infinitely more true is that of God, who sees the end from the very beginning. So I emphasize thus that it's a very perfect and definite plan, complete and entire. You remember the Apostle Paul in the 11th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans uh, doesn't hesitate to speak about a time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall have come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Now, God has known all this from before the foundation of the world. The plan was entire. And he gives these revelations of it to his servants so that they can write about it and we can read about it. But the plan, you see, is already known to God. He knows the number of the fullness of the Gentiles. He knows the number of Israel. He knows the number of this new humanity that is in Christ Jesus. The plan of redemption is an entire plan. It's a perfect plan. It is definite, down to the smallest detail. The next thing I want to emphasize about it, the sixth principle is, the absolute certainty of the consummation of this plan of redemption. And this is one of the most glorious and encouraging things that we can ever consider together. I thank God that that's made very plain and clear even in the third chapter of Genesis. When God pronounced his curse there upon the serpent and announced this warfare between the seed of the woman and the serpent, he made it very plain and clear that this enemy who had brought men who was perfect down to the dust and to shame and degradation was going to be destroyed finally and utterly defeated. And the Bible keeps on reminding us of this. And in its last book it gives us a picture of it and the consummation of it all when even the devil himself shall be cast into the lake burning with fire and shall be destroyed to all eternity. God's plan is absolutely certain. Whatever the appearances may be, however, they may suggest the contrary to us at different times and at different epochs. It makes no difference at all. There is nothing that can frustrate his plan. There is nothing that can prevent it from being worked out to the smallest detail as God has purposed it. That is, of course, the major theme of the Bible. We're given an account of the end here, as well as the beginning. The whole thing is there, and it's certain, and it's absolute. And we can rest assured that no power of men, or of earth, or of hell can ever prevent what God, in this eternal council before the foundation of the world, had purpose. The next thing I want to emphasize is, and it's again a thing that is emphasized in this first chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians, is that this purpose of God in redemption not only applies to men, but it applies to all things. It applies to the world itself. And as I've just been saying, it includes what God has purposed even with regard to his enemies. Did you notice how Paul puts it? Having made known unto us, he says in the ninth verse of this first chapter of Ephesians, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, it was a mystery, it was hidden, it was there in his purpose, but we wouldn't have known it if he hadn't been pleased graciously to make it known to us. But he has made known unto us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. It's all of grace. It's all his love. What? Well, here it is. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, there it is again, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now that's the plan. So often I'm afraid many of us are tempted to think of, the, of salvation and of redemption only in terms of ourselves or only in terms of a number of individuals. But we must never do that. This great purpose of God includes the heavens and the earth, all things, everything. Come within this scheme and this purpose. Even, I say, to the extent of determining beforehand the final fate and destiny of Satan and evil and all that belongs to his territory. There will be a final destruction of it. And there will be this new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, which will be the grand result of the work of the redemption of the Son of God. Well, that brings me to my eighth point, which is this one. That this great plan of redemption always centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, Paul tells us that his purpose is to do all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, and he repeats himself, even in him. I shall have occasion again to go on emphasizing that and repeating it. I put it here as a principle because I'm sorry to say that you will find that there are certain people who very definitely teach that there is some form of redemption possible to certain people apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find in uh, certain uh, notes on the scriptures, which are rather familiar, that we are told that a time is going to come when certain people are going to be saved by their own keeping of the law. That the dispensation of grace will have finished and a new dispensation of law will come in and that men will be saved then by keeping the law or by breaking the law. I don't hesitate to assert that that is a completely and entirely erroneous conception contradiction of the Bible. There is no salvation in the Bible anywhere except in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one gospel. There is only one way of salvation. The saints of the Old Testament are saved in Christ as much as you and I are and all who will ever live must be saved in Christ or not at all. It is in him that God is going to reconcile all things. And there is no other way of reconciliation. We cannot emphasize that too much or too strongly. Perhaps I can put it like this and emphasize it by varying my expression of it. We call this book the Bible, don't we? And we divide it into two portions, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does this mean? Well, the Old Testament and the New Testament are concerned about the same person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What is the Old Testament? It is the preparation, the promise, the prophecy of his coming. Why, back in Genesis 3, you've got the whole thing put so plainly and clearly. Who is the seed of the woman that is going to brew, crush, and bruise the serpent's head? It is none other than the Son of God. And he did it upon the cross on Calvary's hill. He is the seed of the woman. So you see, the Old Testament from beginning to end is pointing to him. And what is the New Testament? But the glorious fulfillment of every type and shadow. It is the substance of all the shadows. He is the great antitype of all the types. It is the fulfillment of everything that God had indicated he was going to do. There is your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. But it is all in Christ. The plan, the purpose, the way of redemption is always in him. And that brings me to my last heading, which is this. That this purpose of God in redemption has been revealed to mankind in various covenants that God in his infinite grace and kindness has been pleased to reveal to us. Now I don't enter onto that tonight. I hope to go on to consider this question of these covenants uh, next uh, Friday evening. But God in his infinite grace and kindness and condescension has not only determined thus upon this plan and scheme of redemption, he has even done something else which in a way is, is still more extraordinary and marvelous. And it is this, that he has made these agreements with men. The almighty and eternal God, the sovereign Lord, he turns to men who sinned against him and rebelled against him. And he begins to tell him of what he is going to do for him. And as we shall see, when he did it with Abraham, he not only told him what he was going to do, he confirmed it with an oath in order that men might have a certain and a sure hope. Well, very well. We've taken a kind of synoptic view of the biblical doctrine of redemption tonight. We've looked at it in general. We've surveyed the whole landscape, as it were. We've looked at it from beginning to end. And we've seen that thus God in his kindness and love and mercy and compassion and in his infinite grace looked upon men when he deserved nothing but hell and destruction and gave him the promise of this wonderful redemption that finally was going to be consummated in his own eternal Son our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In him, therefore to him, and to him alone, must of necessity be all the praise, and all the honor, and all the glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do indeed thus humble ourselves before thee, we would express our amazement and our astonishment at thy wonderful love toward us. We realize how undeserving we are. We realize how helpless we are. And we see, O oh God, so clearly that were it not for thy love, 
we should be entirely without hope, that we cannot understand it. We can but humbly thank thee and praise thy name, that thou hast not only looked upon us, but sent thine only Son, thy dear Son, into this our world, and even to the death and the shame of the cross, that we might be rescued and redeemed. O oh God, open our eyes to see all this more and more clearly. Enable us to see and to know thy love, that we may love thee and praise thee as we ought. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain life and earthly pilgrimage and evermore. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.